0: good morning, students. It's uh, good to be with you again. We get to open up God's Word and see what He has in store for us in the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, find them and turn them to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Exodus. We had Easter last week, so let me just get you up to speed on what's been happening so far. Israel, the people of God, were under slavery and oppression in Egypt and God heard their cries and through the deliverer Moses God redeemed his people out of slavery and into freedom and life. He led them through the Red Sea, he miraculously parted it, and they've been wandering in the wilderness, and now they are at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. They've just received the good law of God, the 10 commandments, and we see how God has put a covenant before Israel, this promise that if they would obey his commands, he would bless them. Today, we're going to see God and Israel affirm what we call the Mosaic Covenant. We will see Israel respond in worship through giving, and then we'll dive into the construction of the tabernacle, the place where the presence of God will dwell among the people of Israel. That's where we're headed this morning. All of this, though, is pointing to a greater manifestation of God's presence, his power, his grace in Jesus Christ. The section of Exodus is really like a shadow that points us and finds its substance in the new covenant, not the Mosaic covenant, but the new covenant, which is Christ dwelling with his redeemed people by the Spirit of God. So that's where we're headed this morning. So find Exodus chapter 24, starting in verse 1. We're going to see The people of Israel and God affirm this covenant that they're making together. Let's read in verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth that we find in it. Because your word reveals you. And God, you are the truth. In Jesus, we know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so we pray, God, that By your Spirit, you would open our eyes to see and behold your glory here in this text as it shows us what Israel was doing to be your people, but also points us forward to the person and work of Christ and even farther ahead to the new heavens and new earth, this new creation that awaits us at your return. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Moses is on the mountain, but he returns to the people. He tells them all the rules and all of the commands that we learned about two weeks ago. They affirm their commitment. You heard in this text, the people of Israel says, all these words we will do, all of these commands that God has given, we will follow. They affirm their commitment to this covenant as God's redeemed people. Not to earn a place as one of God's people, but because they already are God's people, they now obey his commands. And here was the promise. If they will obey God's commands, then God will bless them. That, that's In a nutshell, that's what the Mosaic Covenant was all about. So let's keep reading, starting in verse 5. It says, And he, that's Moses, sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Look at this. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You see what's happening here? The people of Israel offer a sacrifice on this altar to the Lord as a a sign of worship in response to what's going on. Moses takes the blood from the sacrifice. He throws it on the altar and then he sprinkles it. He throws it on the people themselves and he calls it the blood of the covenant. Now, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So this sprinkling or, or pouring is clearly pointing you and me to the fact that sinners must have blood of sacrifice applied to them. right? You and I need a substitute, a sacrifice, in order to stand before and enjoy fellowship with God. Now, Jesus in the Gospels picks this theme up for the disciples during the Last Supper. He's sitting around with the disciples. He takes the wine. He takes the bread. But listen to Matthew 26. It says, And he, that's Jesus, took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So students, while we read of a covenant given to Israel here in the Mosaic covenant that includes inheriting a land and receiving God's blessing. All of it is foreshadowing and promising an even better covenant where the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. When you and I celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're being reminded that Jesus Christ is that Lamb, is that sacrifice. It was His blood that has washed us white as snow. So Moses and the elders then returned to the mountain to receive more instructions. So find uh, Exodus chapter 25. And we're going to see here that the people of God are going to respond. They're going to be called to respond with giving. The first thing that God says to Moses on the mountain is that the people must make a contribution. He did not allow Israel to go empty-handed when they left Egypt, but instead he blessed them with all the treasures of Egypt. So now they must offer up these blessings to God in worship. Let's see that here in Exodus 25. In verse 1 it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. "...gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate, breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, So you shall make it. So notice, God is commanding Moses. He says, When you go back to the people of Israel, tell them to give me a contribution, to give an offering to me. I'm going to tell you the specifics of what you ought to give, but I'm not going to tell you how much you should give. So notice that this contribution, that this command to give, was based on the freedom of the conscience of Israel to give. Right, look again at verse 2, starting in the middle of it. It says, From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So, right, the materials were specific, but the amount was not because God desires that his people worship him freely, not under compulsion. Uh, not because they have to, not as an obligation, but because they want to worship him. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In verse 7, he writes, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So students, do you give with joy? Do you give out of compulsion or out of obligation? Or instead, do you give out of joy? Because right now, you may not have money. To give, right? You might not have income to give to the Lord through His church. You may not be able to serve the Lord in ways that you normally do. But right now, in this season of life, you have resources like time and energy and intention. And as you think about what the Lord has done for you, you think about how He's blessed you, how He's revealed Himself to you, what, what might your response be as an offering of worship and sacrificial giving, what might that response look like in your life? Maybe you can give your time in this next week or so to to writing your table leader a letter. Or maybe just messaging your equipping group leader. Or, Or calling a friend and checking in with them. Maybe you give some time each day to specifically pray for the needs of our community. Maybe you give your attention and your energy to really, really study a part of the Bible. And and students, I would love to help you in these things. So if you have a question and you're like, oh, I want to learn more about God's grace or I want to learn more about the Holy Spirit, I want to give my time and my energy and my attention right now as an offering to the Lord, but I don't know where to start. Ask me. I would love to help you find a way to use your time and your energy in a way that glorifies the Lord. So, So here's the deal. I believe that if you do these things, I believe that if you give an offering to the Lord, that those are the kinds of things that not only please the heart of God, but they're the kind of things that God wants to bless. And how do I know that? It's because God asks us to do these kinds of things in his word. He He shows us that his word is much is like much fine gold. It's more precious than silver, that we should know it and learn it and hide it in our heart. And so as we move and practice in this season of life to to grow in our knowledge and our appreciation of God's Word as we seek to love our neighbor as ourselves, those are the kinds of things that God would want to bless. Israel, in this text, gave what God had blessed them with. They had gold and silver. They had precious jewels. God had given them those things, and that's how, he, that's how they responded in worship. Right now, you and I have time and opportunity, and I pray that God would move your heart to give in some way. Now in this text, we have to think about what was the result of their giving? Why were they giving? What was the, the materials being gathered together for? And the answer is the tabernacle. Now, This was the, the temple, the, the tent, the meeting place that would move around with the people of Israel throughout their wanderings in the wilderness and as they entered into the promised land. It was the place where God would dwell among a sinful people. Now, the items in and around the tabernacle in verses in chapter 25 through 27 are going to serve to show us this glorious and powerful truth that we all should cling on to, especially right now, and that's this. That God wants to be with us. The reason why Moses receives this word from the Lord is because God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be with them. And not only that, he makes a way to be with his people. Now, uh, chapters 35 through 40 of the book of Exodus are very similar to what we're about to study. So if if you think about it, if you have time, I'd encourage you to just read through Exodus 35 through 40 on your own, because what we're going to read is God's command to build the things of the tabernacle. Exodus 35 through 40 is the actual building of the tabernacle. So... 25 through 27 is the tabernacle revealed. That's where we are now. 35 through 40 is the tabernacle installed. Now our focus right now will be on the specific elements, what their immediate purpose was, how they might point back to creation before sin, and how they might point forward to new covenant realities, things that you and I can understand and appreciate and apply to our own lives today. The tabernacle should give you and me as one of my professors said, a nostalgia for Eden, a nostalgia for the Garden of Eden, a kind of longing to go back to that place that you and I have never been. That's what the tabernacle was set up to do for the people of Israel. And it's what, hopefully, as we read, it should do in our hearts as well. So first and foremost, uh, we read about the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat in Exodus 25-25. 10 through 22. This is the place where God would meet with Moses and the high priest. It was the holiest thing in the most holy place. And Psalm 132 verse 7 calls the mercy seat God's footstool. It's literally where heaven and earth meet. Now this should remind us of Genesis 1 and 2, where God's manifest presence was in the Garden of Eden with his creation and with Adam and Eve. Now this holy, majestic place where God dwells is also a place of mercy. Notice it's called the mercy seat that's on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And on one day out of the year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice onto the seat and it would signify that God's wrath for sin has been satisfied, that atonement has taken place, that God's mercy now can go to the people of Israel. Now, on the left and on the right of the mercy seat were carvings of cherubim, of angels that protected the mercy seat. Now, these angels are the same kind of angels that guard the Garden of Eden once Adam and Eve were cast out. Now, all throughout Scripture, when angels are present, God is at work. Now, we see this clearly from last week, right? When we talked about the story of the resurrection and the sunrise service, what did we see when we looked into the empty tomb? What was guarding the empty tomb? It was two angels. Where angels are, God is at work. It's in Christ, it's in Jesus, that God's holiness and his mercy meet together for us. Students, at at Jesus' return, he will display perfect holiness and perfect mercy as he judges the living and the dead. We will, as Christians, by his mercy, get to live in light of his holiness forever. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what we see in the Ark of the Covenant and in the mercy seat. All right, next we see in Exodus chapter 25 is the table and the showbread. And we see this starting in verse 23. He says, You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits shall be its length, cubit's breadth, a cubit and a half its height, You shall overlay it with pure gold. This is this table that will contain, it will have bread on it, 12 loaves of bread to be exact. Now, why is this here? The table and the bread both are important. The 12 loaves of bread represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So what this shows us is the 12 tribes of Israel, at this point, all of God's people have a place at the table. They have a place in God's presence. Now this table shows us that God is a provider. He provides for his people. Right? Looking back in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve all the trees for food. They, they had no needs. And he gave them more than they needed because he gave them his very own presence. And he does the same for us. In Christ, we have all that we need. Jesus asks us uh, to pray for daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. He tells us to give us this day our daily bread. God is always our provider as well. But then Jesus in John chapter 6 says that he is the bread of life. So, So what does this mean? It means that if you partake of this bread, if you eat of this bread of life, you will never hunger again. God sustains our souls with his very own body. Now, even in this moment, We think about all the things going on in our lives right now. Do you know? Do you know that God is taking care of you? Do you realize that He is the provider for all of your needs? Like right now, He's sustaining you and me by His gracious provision. The one who offers us the bread of life, Paul says, will give us everything. Everything. But listen to Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Through Christ, God will give you and me all things. He is our gracious provider. And that's the promise of his provision that we see here in the table and the showbread here in the tabernacle, but, but more clearly, most clearly, in the person and work of Christ. That he's provided you with all that you need to have eternal life. Students, this is the promise of our provider. So we need to cling to it. We need to cling to it when blessings abound. We need to cling to it when sorrows rise, because one day in the new creation, we will be surrounded by the glorious provision of God. The trees yield fruit in each month in the new creation. The wedding feast of the Lamb will satisfy us forever and ever. And we get a glimpse of that here in the tabernacle. Third, we see in the tabernacle the golden lampstand. Starting in verse 31, he says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. And the lampstead shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. This is a seventy-five-pound golden lamp, solid gold, and it gave light to the tabernacle. It's, it, it it gives off a very. It has a very practical purpose. Uh, in the tabernacle, it would be dark. And so the priests, in order to offer sacrifices, go into the Holy of Holies, they would need to be able to see. They would need light. And so very practically, the lamp is there uh, immediately to, to give light to those who need it. But we know that God is light. And all throughout the Bible, we see language that refers to God as light. That in 1 John, it says that in Him, God is light, and in Him, there is no darkness at all. All light finds its source in God. Just think about this. Going back to creation, you think about Genesis chapter 1. God created light before he created the sun. So how does that work? How does it work that there's light on the earth without the sun? And the answer is, God does not need created things to fill his creation with the light of his presence. He is the one who is light. And so this lamp reminds the priest and the people of Israel that that God and his word were their source of light and life. Later on in chapter 27 of the book of Exodus, we read that there's oil to be made for the lamp that's constantly supposed to go to this lamp so that the lamp would never stop burning. That forever... As long as the lamp was there, it was shining a light. Now, this lamp never ran out. The lamp never stopped shining. And students, God is the same way. Now, our vision at times may be dimmed by our own sin and by the darkness of this world, but God's light shines constantly and forever. And John tells us in his gospel that Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, was also the light of the world. He writes in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that in Him, in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And now, students, this light, foreshadowed in the lampstand of the tabernacle, seen most clearly in the person and work of Jesus, this light, now shines in us. The Spirit of Christ now dwells in each of us by grace through faith, and we now shine as lights in the world like a city set on a hill. God will shine through us into the darkness of this world. So so think about this with me. If you are a Christian, if you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you, God has seen fit to use you as the means by which the light of his glory shines into creation. He's chosen you and me to shine as the light of the gospel, to shine as the light of his glory in a dark world. Students, we're supposed to be shining the light of the glory of God, and we're able to do this, at all times. We're called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And and think about this. The kind of light that we get to shine because of the Spirit of Christ in us is a kind of light that stars could never show. Because we've been made in God's image. We've been saved by His grace. We've been indwelled with His Holy Spirit. What an incredible grace that you and I get to enjoy this, this privilege. And it gets better. One day... When we see Jesus face to face, there won't be a need for lights anymore. Listen to this description of the city of God in Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 23. It says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. That's our destiny, students. If you're a Christian, that's where you're headed. You're headed to a place where there's no need for the sun. You're headed to a place where there's no need for lights. There's no need for lamps. Because the light of the glory of God fills this new heaven and this new earth completely. We will get to glory in the light of his presence for eternity. Fourth, we see in this text the structure of the tabernacle itself. Starting in chapter 26, verse 1, he says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. So this tabernacle is literally a tent made of curtains. And within these curtains... Cherubim, those angels, are woven into the fabric. Here we learn how the tabernacle was to be constructed. Now listen to Tony Merida. He writes about this text. He says, Cherubim were woven into the curtain to protect the entrance into God's presence, just like the Garden of Eden. This should remind us of paradise lost. Though God would dwell among them, access to him was limited. God's presence was guarded. So in other words, because of sin, access to God was veiled by these curtains. It was it was broken. It was broken from view. And the whole tabernacle should remind you and me, as it reminded Israel, of the Garden of Eden. I mean, over and over we see things in this Uh, in this text about the building of the tabernacle that we also find in the Garden of Eden. So Jim Hamilton, a professor, a biblical professor, has given us a list of connections. And I'm just going to go through them very quickly. Think about these. In both stories, Garden of Eden, creation, and the building of the tabernacle, there are seven speaking acts of creation, right? So in Genesis 1 and 2, there are seven days, seven times that the Lord speaks. And in this text, there are seven times where it says, the Lord spoke to Moses, or the Lord said to Moses. In both stories, creation and the tabernacle, we read about the place where God dwells with his people. In both stories, we read of a time where the Creator reflects on creation. So in the creation story, God says that it looks at all of his, he looked at all of his creation and said, Behold, it is very good. Moses, at the completion of the tabernacle, calls the tabernacle a blessed place. In both of these stories, the work ends with a Sabbath rest. So creation is completed, God rests. The people build the tabernacle, the people rest on the Sabbath. In both of these stories, a fall quickly follows behind creation. So we obviously know the story of the fall in Genesis 3, but in a few chapters later from now, Exodus 32, Israel will fall into idolatry by worshiping the golden calf, and we'll study that in two weeks. And lastly, in both stories, at creation and the tabernacle, cherubim guard the presence of God from sinful people at the east entrance. It's the only place that they could go in to get to God's presence, and the cherubim are guarding the way. Now, what does all of this show us? What does this connection between creation and the tabernacle show us? It shows us the gospel. Let me show you why. Here in this text, we see that God wants to enjoy communion and fellowship with his people. He wants his people to enjoy communion and fellowship with him. But the sin of humanity breaks this relationship down. And we as sinful people, we can't return to this relationship on our own. Something has to be done for us. God has to make a way. So here, he calls for a sacrifice of blood to be made by the high priest so that we can dwell, so that Israel, rather, can dwell in his presence. So do you see the connection? Our broken relationship with God is ultimately restored the same way. We've sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We've broken this relationship. And now a great high priest has offered a sacrifice on your behalf and on my behalf shedding His blood for our sins. And now by faith, His blood is applied to us. It's thrown on us like the blood of this covenant was thrown on Israel. And now, because of this blood applied, because of this sacrifice that was given on our behalf, we are now welcomed into God's presence freely. That curtain that separates God's presence from His people at the death of Christ was torn from top to bottom separating God and man no longer. So now all you and I have to do is receive this gift of grace from a God who has been pursuing a people for himself ever since the beginning of creation. That's what we see in the tabernacle, that God wants to dwell with his people and that he makes a way for them to do so. Fifth and finally, in Exodus 27, we see the bronze altar. Now right outside the tabernacle, in the in the temple court was going to be this bronze altar. And this bronze altar was seven and a half feet long, it was seven and a half feet deep, and it was four and a half feet tall. It was it was pretty, pretty sizable, it was pretty massive. When you walked into the court, you couldn't help but see this giant bronze altar. And it would have caused the Israelites to immediately and over and over again remember that sacrifice has to be made before I can enter into God's presence. Before I can go to the tabernacle, I have to go to the altar. Before I can enjoy God's fellowship, a sacrifice has to be made. And the people of Israel lived this way day after day, month after month, year after year, for centuries. In order to go into God's presence, in order to go into the holy place, sacrifice had to be made. And there's good news for us. The good news is a sacrifice has been made once and for all. No longer do we have to go to an altar and offer sacrifices so that we can enjoy God's presence and God's fellowship and God's communion. A sacrifice has been made. The blood of the Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. You and I who were far off have now been brought near once and for all. In Christ, student, There is no more need for an altar. There's no more need for sacrifices because they have all been made. Now, why spend so much time on this? We've kind of flown through a few chapters of the book of Exodus, and I told you the last five or six chapters of the book of Exodus is just a repetition of the people of Israel actually building this tabernacle. Why does Moses give so much time and so much detail into telling you and me story of the tabernacle. I think it's because you and I need to clearly see that Moses and the old covenant and the tabernacle and the elements within the tabernacle are all pointing to something greater than themselves. They're all pointing to something more amazing, more gracious, more glorifying to God. One day, God's presence would no longer be contained in a holy of holies. God's presence would come in its fullness. One day, our sin wouldn't be uh, atoned for by the blood of, of goats and bulls that would have to be done over and over again. One day, our sin would be dealt with once and for all. One day, our relationship with God would be fully restored. The people of Israel are looking through these things to a greater promise. Now, how would this happen? We read in the Bible that all of the promises of God and the whole law of God are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We look back at this story as the shadow so that we can more clearly see and understand and appreciate the substance. The old covenant always is pointing us to trust in this new covenant that's been brought about through Christ. God put on flesh and dwelled among us. That word in John 1 for dwelled is literally the word tabernacled. Jesus is the greater tabernacle, the greater sacrifice, the fulfillment of this text and every text. And now by his Holy Spirit, he dwells in us. God is not just among us like he was in Exodus. God is now in us. He dwells in you and in me. So do you know him? Do you trust him? How will you respond? I pray the Spirit leads and guides you. And and please know that even if we're physically separated, we are not alone. You are not alone. I'm here. Your parents are there. Your table leaders are here. Your equipping leaders are here. All of us are here to love and guide and lead you towards Jesus and towards a greater understanding and a greater love for the God of the gospel. Students, don't just be hearers of the word. Be doers of the word. We've been given everything in Christ. Let's respond in faith to him. Let's pray. God in heaven, we pray that you would take this word and use it to nourish our souls. You would bind up the brokenhearted as you remind us of your nearness to us and your presence with us, that you would humble the proud and show them that their righteousness, that their works are like filthy rags compared to your holiness, compared to your majesty. God, help us all to lean more dearly and to cling more tightly to the good news of the gospel, that through Christ, a sacrifice has been made, that no longer do we have to offer ourselves, or offer sacrifices for ourselves to go into your presence because you've made the way once and for all for us. God, we thank you for the gospel. We long for your return. We long for your healing of this place. We long for the day where there will be no more sin, no more disease, no more sorrow, no more pain. Until that day comes, find us near to the cross and remind us of your nearness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.